It's one o'clock and we have a full house, so we will begin. My name is David Ison. I'm the Dean of St. Paul's. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to this edition of the Sunday Forum uh, with Dave Tomlinson. Um, I first came across Dave when, well, it was quite a long time ago now, um, in terms of your book. I didn't, haven't known you personally very long. Uh, but came across this book called The Post-Evangelical. I thought, oh, that's interesting. What's the post office got to do with evangelicalism? Um, and read it and found it in incredibly helpful in terms of where I was and the things that I've been learning and growing about and had a very soft spot for him ever since. It's been interesting to watch the way that he has developed. So he's not only a, a writer and a speaker, but he's also now a vicar. I don't know whether you'd, you'd have imagined that 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, so having worked uh, in a pub for 10 years, which is a sort of dream job for a vicar like Dave, um, <laughs> running Holy Joe's, he's now a vicar of St. Luke's Holloway, and the Church of England is trying to get him to be in the sort of mould that you would expect a vicar to be in, and Dave steadfastly resists as best he can, and good luck to him too, um, because he comes from a long tradition of Christian humanist understanding. There was um, a book again in a previous generation called Being Human, uh, Being Christian, being Christian, being human. Um, and that's very much about what the Christian faith is. It's one of the most humanistic faiths, actually, that there is, because it's about how God comes to meet us in our humanity. And that's where Dave is coming from. You may have been at the last forum when uh, he was talking about his book, How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being, uh, which has a dedication in the front from the Bishop of London um, that says, I do hope a commendation from his bishop in view of what he says about religion and church life will not people put, uh, put people off reading this book, which is rich in humanity and written by a convincing and compassionate pastor who's probably not a very good member of, member of his deanery synod. Um, Dave has a, a master's degree in biblical interpretation, um, and as well as these two books, uh, uh, The Post-Evangelical and Reenchanting Christianity, he's written, this is his latest one, which is the peg around which we're evolving today, The Bad Christian's Manifesto, Reinventing God and Other Modest Proposals. And we look forward to hearing what his other modest proposals may be. <laughs> um, he's going to talk for 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for questions and answers, after which you do have an opportunity, I think, to buy the book. Um, I don't get a, any royalties from that, so it's an entirely disinterested recommendation. So Dave, thank you very much indeed for coming this morning. We look forward to hearing what you're going to say to us. Thank you. Thank you. It must be a good thing to have the Dean of St. Paul's have a soft spot for you, mustn't it? But, uh, I'm very grateful to, to David and St. Paul's for uh, allowing me to come here again and uh, perpetrate my heresies and ideas and um, <clears throat> I wrote uh, the bad how to be a bad Christian really uh, inspired by a book with a similar title called how to be a bad bird watcher which is a remarkably good book I recommend it completely it's written by Simon Barnes who uh, was a writer with the times and uh, and he begins this book by saying I am a bad bird watcher well that's a little bit of a fib, really. He's, he's a pretty good bird watcher. He's a patron of the RSPB, actually. And, uh, but what he's doing in this book is something I'd never seen before. He's taking bird watching out of the hands of, of geeks and twitchers and people with expensive equipment and basically saying birds are part of everybody's life. And it doesn't really matter whether you know the difference between a coal tit and a blue tit or a greenfinch and a goldfinch or whatever for you to enjoy them and for them to enrich your life. Now, what he's doing, in fact, is drawing you in onto a little journey, really. And I think the more you read, the more you think it would be really good to know a few more things about birds. But in the cover, on the cover of the book, he says, quite simply, you look out the window, you see a bird, you enjoy it. Congratulations, you're a bad bird watcher. And it was really just reading that just went zing inside and I felt I've got to write a book because this is just what I think about God. I think God should not be left in the hands of religious geeks and twitchers, people like me, uh, churchgoers and the like, religious people, because I think God is part of everybody's life in some shape or form, uh, named or unnamed, recognised or unrecognised. And so that's really what lay behind the bad Christian idea. Uh, the books are not primarily written for people who are happy sort of believers, you know, uh, churchgoers. They're written for people outside. And I'm very pleased to say that 
with the help of, of Hodders, my publishers, um, the book has gone, I mean, probably about three quarters of the sales of How to Be a Bad Christian went into the, into the general bookstore, not into the religious uh, bookshops some of whom didn't want it anyway. And, uh, and the responses that I get on a regular basis from people uh, just thrills me so much that, that the people who just happen to go into Waterstones or come across it on Amazon or whatever, um, and who, well, my wife says, why do they all tell you their life stories? You know, they write these enormously long messages to me. Um, and I suppose the thing is, reading a book and writing, it's a very intimate form of communication, isn't it? Although it's very isolated to write, um, when you read a book, you kind of feel you know this person, and it is, and it is a close relationship. So I think that when people have, have suffered under a lot of religion, as many people have, um, or they've struggled their way to try to see some wood for the trees, and they suddenly feel... Well, I'll tell you one particular guy who wrote to me, and uh, he's, he's actually... Um, He's actually a quite significant person in the, in the world of music, in DJing, if you know what I'm talking about. And uh, he heard me talking about How to Be About Christian on the radio, and he sent me a message, and he said, I've always considered myself an atheist. Uh, that is until just recently when I was standing out in my garden on a lovely day, and he said, I suddenly felt love hit me in the chest. He said, I just felt kind of enveloped by love. And he said, I didn't, I've never called it God, and I, and I don't know what it was. But he said, it made me open my mind to the thought that there's something else. And then he said, I heard you talking about your book. He said, I've ordered it, and I look forward to reading it. So I said, well, I look forward to hearing what you think about it. So he read it, and he sent me a, a message back, and he said, um, the nearest thing I can think of to compare this, he, he said, it's as if I've been making my way through the jungle quite well. Um, he said, I've got my boots and I've got my machete and I've been making progress and it's as if I've suddenly met Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> a spiritual bushman. Well, I was kind of chuffed at this idea, really. Crocodile Dundee of the church. Um, but really, you know, he's typical of so many people who have contacted me, really to say that these these books have drawn them into a journey and that is what thrills me most. Um, I'd, I'd, I've never really, or not for a very long time, have I liked the word evangelist. It's a word that's you know, sort of loaded with so many things that I don't really like or identify with. Um, but I've come in my old age really to accept that I'm some kind of liberal evangelist. Um, I'm passionate about what I have to say, the message of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, my theology undoubtedly is far too liberal for a lot of people, but um, I think it's the combination of the two that we need actually quite a lot more of. So let me tell you a bit about this manifesto book, and I'm going to begin by reading you the opening story. Forgive me if you've already read the book, but it's, you'll enjoy it anyway. And really, this book is about reinventing God, obviously not literally, um, but it is about helping people to reinvent their understanding of God and also their experience of God. Uh, trust me, it's a book which has embedded within it decades, decades of theological reflection and thought and research and rethink and, and, and revision. Um, but I try to, to hide that very much in the background. It's, it's, much, it's not really a book about redefining God in theological terms, but more in experiential terms. I'm more interested in how we experience God than what sort of words we use to describe God. No one can forget Jim's funeral, the one where the Sex Pistols showed up instead of Frank Sinatra. Despite a rainstorm of near-biblical proportions, more than 300 people arrived at the crematorium. Those who couldn't, who, could, who couldn't squeeze into the chapel peered through the open door from the entrance hall. Some even stood outside in the rain, listening to the service relayed from speakers. Grief strikes hard when a person dies young, and at just 35 years, it felt like Jim's life had barely begun. When six of his friends carried his coffin into the chapel, the sobs and moans were so loud I could scarcely make myself heard. But little by little, the tears and groans morphed into smiles and laughter when one speaker after another related funny and moving accounts of Jim's short but eventful life. The stories and tributes over, I invited the congregation to join me in commending Jim to God's loving care. Nothing now remained but for me to hit the button to send Jim on his way. 
Glancing toward the chapel attendant, I nodded for the final track to commence. That's when it happened. Bellowing through the speakers, the debauched, warbling sneer of Sid Vicious. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. <laughs> I'm sure you've got the record. The entire gathering stood stock still as the contemptuous obscenity in the next line of the song reverberated around the chapel. There was a pause, an intake of breath. Then, in one gloriously anarchic moment, every single soul erupted into rapturous applause and laughter. Jim, you crazy bugger, one man shouted above the tumult. We love you! We love you! The congregation hollered back in unison as if rehearsed. Everybody laughed and cried and laughed all the way to the pub. Frank Sinatra's My Way is probably the nation's favourite funeral song, but no one had requested the Sex Pistols version until Jim. I swear I heard him giggling in the background as the congregation stood open-mouthed. Jim was HIV positive and died of an AIDS-related illness. We met in the hospital where he spent his final months and where I served as the chaplain. Our many conversations on the ward focused mostly on music and football. Jim was allergic to religion, which is why it surprised me when he asked if I would take his funeral. I find it strange and slightly disconcerting to plan someone's funeral with the person sitting there in front of me, large as life. I never get used to that. But Jimmy is the process with his dark humour and reassuring down-to-earth manner. When it, comes to this, when it came to discussing the final song, he stuck to his guns, despite a barrage of protest from his partner, Mario. It'll be a blast, Jim said, grinning from ear to ear. I only wish I could be there to see their faces. Yeah, that's the problem, Mario piped up. I will be there. <laughs> we laughed, like three mates sharing a joke in the bar after work. Just before leaving, I reached across the bed to give Jim a hug. He recoiled sharply and exclaimed, No, Dave, don't touch me, don't touch me, I'm unclean. Unclean, I said. What on earth are you talking about, unclean? Well, it turned out that in his early teens, Jim attended a church with tub-thumping sermons about the abomination of homosexuality. He knew he was gay from a young boy, but never told anyone until he confessed to the vicar. And after that, he became engulfed in weeks of so-called counselling, which was actually nothing short of emotional abuse. Week in, week out, the vicar attempted to deliver Jim from a spirit of homosexuality. A confused teenager, he went along with it, trying his best to change, to become normal. But surprise, surprise, it all came to nothing. Jim still fancied boys, not girls. So he ditched church and religion, came out to his friends and family, and got on with living his life as a young gay man. Years later, after contracting HIV, he met Mario. They fell madly in love and lived happily together for 10 years prior to his death. And yet, despite turning his back on religion, Jim never quite managed to root out that shame embedded in his teenage psyche. And when I went to hug him, well, it all burst forth. The last time a man of the cloth put his arm around me, he said, it was to tell me, lovingly, that I would go to hell if I didn't stop looking at boys. Jim paused, winced, and then said, but what if he was right, Dave? What if the man upstairs really doesn't like gays, people like me? What if... Okay, stop right there, Jim, I said. Let's get this clear. Being gay is not a sin. It's in the same category as being left-handed or having red hair or being a boy instead of a girl. You can't help it. It's normal. No one chooses to be gay. It's just who you are, right? Right, he echoed. Trust me, Jim, you were misled. God loves you just as you are, a beautiful gay man. You have your flaws like the rest of us, but being gay isn't one of them. We hugged and wept. And actually, Jim turned out to be one of the best huggers I've known. <laughs> we embraced many times in the weeks that followed. And yes, I did manage to convince him that God likes fags, as he cheekily enjoyed putting it. That God liked him. I have a basically sunny disposition. I don't rile easily, but what truly gets my goat is misery inflicted in the name of God. On the way home, I pulled the car over, too angry to cry, though I wanted to. Sitting there at the side of the road in silent indignation, I contemplated what sort of God makes a man feel unclean for loving another man with all the passion 
and tenderness and commitment that I feel toward my wife. No God that I can recognise or want anything to do with, that's for sure. There and then I resolved to be an atheist. In the face of any God or religion that torments the likes of Jim or that increases rather than diminishes the sum of human misery, if God exists, she or he has to be better than this. See, in my earlier days, being a Christian was really quite straightforward. If someone said, do you believe in God? I would answer very confidently, yes, of course I believed in God. But now, well, now it feels a bit more complicated. It really depends on what God you're talking about. I certainly don't believe in an old white man with a beard sitting up there in the heavens. I don't also believe in a God who treats gay people as deviants or as unclean. I don't believe in a God who inspires vengeance and war or incites bigotry and sectarianism. I don't believe in a God who consigns people to everlasting torment for not accepting Jesus. I don't believe in a God who presides over the world like some fat controller deciding where and when to intervene in human affairs. So what sort of God do I believe in? Well, that's really what the manifesto book is all about, trying to reinvent God. Um, and the problem really revolves around this G word with, with God. The word, the concept, what it musters up in people's minds. I do think that we need, in many ways, to reinvent God, or at least to reinvent the way that we think about or imagine God. Basically, this kind of man upstairs kind of God, controlling everything and randomly intervening in human affairs, just no longer makes sense to most people. Doesn't make sense to me. But that doesn't mean that people have abandoned God or that the, the spiritual quest is over for people. I think people are still God-seekers by whatever name. I think we're surrounded by God-seekers. I meet them every day in the course of my work, people who don't come to church and probably never will. And time and again I say to people when they apologise for the fact that they don't come to church, I don't actually think God cares whether you come to church or not. I do, I'm a vicar. But... Uh, <laughs> If I thought for one moment that God categorised people as the churchgoers and the not-churchgoers, the believers and the not-believers, uh, the innies and the outies, then I think I would have to be out of here, really. I don't believe in that sort of God. Folks say to me all the time, I'm not religious, I, I don't really believe in God, but I often say, but I think there's something there. So I say, OK, well, forget God, the word, Forget religious jargon and translate that something into terms that make sense to you. And actually open yourself to that something, because actually I happen to believe that that something is what I call God. And I think if you open yourself to that, then you will be drawn into, into a journey. And in the Bad Christians Manifesto, I'm trying to help people with this process, with thinking about notions of God which are not necessarily particularly religious, but are nevertheless very real. Love's a good example. I think that anyone who knows what it is to love and be loved actually knows quite a bit about God straight away. Or breathing. To me, God isn't some uh, alien entity in another part of the universe. I don't think of God as a being sort of out there somewhere elsewhere. Um, I think much more in terms of God being like the air that's all around us, that surrounds us and that's within us. Um, it's what gives us life, but we don't really think about it except when we have a problem breathing. To be honest, when some religious people talk about God, uh, I think I really would rather be an atheist. And when some atheists talk about the God they don't believe in, well, I think, hmm, I quite like that. Um, I don't know if you know about something called the, the Sunday Assembly, which... Uh, has been going f since the beginning of 2013 now, which uh, was tagged for a while by the press as the atheist church. They've actually gone away from that uh, banner because uh, they feel that it's, it's too exclusing, exclusive. But um, it began actually in a church, a, a decommissioned church, a couple of miles from where I live, and a mutual friend introduced me and Sanderson Jones, the stand-up comedian who's one of the two founders of the Sunday Assembly. And, uh, and we had coffee at the Angel Islington, and we got on quite well. I sent him a copy of How to Be a Bad Christian before, and it was sitting on the table when we arrived. And uh, he said, I think your approach to God is very similar to my approach to atheism. 
by which I think he meant neither of us are fundamentalists. Um, and, uh, and Sanderson and his friend Pippa, who runs it with him, another comedian, are two quite remarkable people, I think, actually, who have opened up something uh, quite significant. Um, and I think the very last thing in the world that church people, Christian people, should do is react against it or to become defensive about it. I think it's, it's something to, to look at and understand. And uh, quite early on, Sanderson invited me to go and be a preacher at the Sunday Assembly. Uh, he asked me to talk about stories, myths, and metaphors as ways of seeing the world and why the Easter story continues to be compelling. So I grabbed that with two hands, very happy. Um, I went to this packed, I mean more packed than this, this church was jammed, every single seat taken, every space taken. 60 people were turned away from the door. I don't think that church ever had that problem before. <laughs> and, um, and I talked and had probably the, the biggest applause I've had anywhere from any audience. And, uh, and, I, and I've talked to, to, to Sanderson many times about this. And he said to me, he said, see, the thing is, Dave, he said, I find the idea of not God energizing. And I said, well, you see, I think that your not God is what I call God. I think we're talking about the energizing spirit of life at the heart of all things, which I will call the Holy Spirit. But you, you know, it doesn't much, these are words, you know, and we kind of, we, we kind of write people off and we fight with people and in the past we've burned and killed people over words instead of recognizing the profound unity that we have as, as human beings with one another and I think that needs to be our starting point. After my talk at the Sunday Assembly, uh, I joined the throng of godless uh, who piled into a nearby pub because you see debating God and not God and all that stuff is quite thirsty business. And, uh, and before long, a group of people huddled around me asking all kinds of questions about my talk. I was surprised and a little disturbed at how much I liked what you said, Johnny confessed, sipping on his beer. It tempted me to check out church again, to which I said, steady. <laughs> Trouble is, he said, when I hear Christians talk about God, I mostly cringe. It's like God is their mate or something. I find it really embarrassing. I agreed. I too find religious God talk at times awkward and uncomfortable. But do you really think God exists, Michelle asked me. What is God? Someone else piped up. I think God's a security blanket for people who can't cope another person chipped in. Well, still quite sober and reasonably lucid, I owned up to being an ontological realist but an epistemological relativist. In plain English, I do believe that God, the word, refers to an actual reality. But I don't think that we have words, categories, or explanations to describe who or what that reality is. Which doesn't mean to say that we don't try and that we shouldn't try. I think we should. But we need to know, really, what is the basis of what we're doing. And in a way, actually, I would say, I don't really think God exists in any sense that we understand existence. God doesn't exist. God, I think, is existence. God transcends, in other words, every and any notion of being or existence that we can imagine. Of course God does. Which is why I think of God as being, as I say, more like the air around us and within us, speaking to a pagan audience, of course, in Athens, Paul said, in God we live and move and have our being, which is very much the way I'm sort of seeing things. My frustration is that many people's struggle with the G word is based on a misunderstanding that the only way to think about God is with uh, a literalistic, theistic framework. In other words, to see God as a, a supernatural human being out there, somewhere else, um, and someone with, with, you know, who influences our lives in the way that some kind of uh, ruling figure would. Our friend Jenny is a good example of, of someone who just couldn't get past this sort of vision of God. Before she died, she used to stay in our home a couple of times a year uh, when she first visited, when she visited London with, with her work and so on. Invariably, we would end up having deep conversations well into the night after consuming, well, probably more red wine than we should. Jenny didn't have a religious bone in her body. 
She was someone who had an enormous zest for life and a great passion for justice, uh, and that was where her work was focused. She was a woman of, I would say, deep spirituality, if not religion, and we shared an awful lot in common. However, in one conversation at about 2.30 a.m., she seemed to get agitated and concerned that our views may be converging a little bit too much. We're sitting in a vicarage, of course. Uh, sipping nervously on her wine, she said, but you need to remember, Dave, I, I am an atheist. You are about as much an atheist as I am an atheist, I pronounced with the kind of pomposity that I only ever attain with the influence of alcohol. And uh, <laughs> I, she said, how do you make that out then? I said, because you are one of the most spiritually motivated human beings that I know. Actually, you're one of the most Christ-like people that I know. And ultimately, I think we believe in the same thing. Not all the words, but the passion that we feel down here. It's just that I call it God and you don't. Well, that was the night, I think, that I managed to convince Jenny that when I say God... I'm not talking about this man upstairs that is immediately evoked when the word is used for her. Jenny was a woman who wrestled with what you might call ultimate questions. She was a woman on a faith journey, regardless of how she chose to name it. She was uh, really, well, you could ask, was she really an atheist, in fact? And I, I sort of suggested that she wasn't. And actually, you know, the great 20th century theologian and philosopher Paul Tillich really took this kind of question on head on and he argues that a real atheist is someone who denies that there is any ultimate concern to be concerned about. In other words, that life is just entirely meaningless. He said that's what atheism really is. Uh, this certainly was not Jenny and it's not most atheists that I know actually. Uh, we may not share God talk, but we do share so, so many ways what Tillich called ultimate concern. A sense that there's something greater than us and that in some shape or form we have a responsibility uh, to be a particular kind of person in the world. Um, atheists, most atheists I know, are completely insulted at the suggestion that they can't have morality without having religious faith. And of course, it's nonsense. Uh, morality, goodness, I think, has, has got a different kind of basis within people. And I personally would take it much more back to a kind of theology of creation, really, um, of the fact that we are created in God's image. And that, as the Quakers put it, there is that of God in everyone. So when all the paraphernalia of specific religious tradition is stripped away, this is fundamentally what the faith journey is about, I think, the pursuit of ultimate concern engaging with something greater than ourselves and seeking to live in the light of that. Now, am I saying that all the other words are unimportant? Of course I'm not. Um, I'm a vicar, for goodness sake, you know. Uh, I've, I'm in the business of words, of religious words. I sometimes take liberties with them, which may be somewhere kind of what the Bishop of London was hinting at in what he said there. Um, I, I think that tradition to me is not a package that's handed down from one person, from one generation to the next, and our job is to keep it entirely and exactly as it is. To me, tradition is a conversation, it's a debate, it's an argument, actually, and I think it should be an argument. It has been that in the past, and I think it should be now, and I think that we are at the vanguard of that argument, if you like, in which the argument, on one level, is actually between that which we've inherited, which has been the thing that has given us light and life and, and revealed God to us and the world that we live in now. And it's in the intersection between these two things that tradition is constantly being recarved and reshaped. And if it isn't that, then it's traditionalism, which is quite a different thing altogether and is something that is static and going nowhere. So it's this sense of ultimate concern, I think, which is so important. Um, I've talked about a woman in the book called Victoria Wilson, who uh, is a lovely young woman who died in 2013 at the age of 43. I was privileged to conduct her funeral at St. Luke's Church. Victoria was born with a condition called tuberous sclerosis, 
which causes growths on the brain and led to a profound learning disability. She wasn't supposed to live very long at all, but no one told her that, so she carried on to 43. Um, she got on with life, actually, achieving more than many people do in twice that time. At the funeral, her mother, Jean, described Victoria as a woman without words, communicating mainly by flexing her eyebrows. But she knew what she wanted and, you know, there'd be things thrown around and pinches and punches and all kinds of things in the way that she would make clear what it was that she was trying to say. She was a gorgeous, flirtatious, flamboyant woman with hundreds of friends and many more admirers. Her passion was music, from Madonna to Mozart. She dressed in bold and bright colours. She wore nail varnish. She enjoyed food and good company and going for walks and all kinds of other things. She was a real human being. But when she was younger, the medical authorities wanted to institutionalise her. And her mother went to see the place where it was suggested she should go. And she said, I wouldn't send my cat here. And uh, she completely refused. And she believed that Victoria deserved a different kind of life. And Victoria wanted to live independently, basically, or as independently as she could. And, and Jean believed that that was something that was her right. And so the two of them campaigned long and hard. They conducted many campaigns, actually, but they campaigned long and hard against Islington Council uh, to provide Victoria with a home of her own. And eventually they won. And uh, Jean was awarded uh, an, an OBE for her work. Uh, she was made elected Woman of the Year and so many things. And Victoria was absolutely part of the whole uh, cat and caboodle of this thing, really. And um, to, to, they, they're part of, part of a, a centre that is actually just across the road from me, a thing called Centre 404, which is a grassroots charity based in a large house uh, which coordinates help for thousands of the boroughs disabled and their parents and carers. And Jean, I would say, uh, in North London, is a bit of a hero, really. Uh, she doesn't sort of see herself that way. She's just a mother who decided to do what she could for her child and for other children like them. And they're a remarkable family. And uh, a few days after the funeral, uh, Jean and Tara came to a service at St Luke's. It was a bit of a shock to me, to be honest, because uh, in preparing the sermon for the Sunday after I'd taken Victoria's funeral, I felt the church needed to know this story. And so I put together a sermon that was all about Victoria and her mother Jean and what great heroes they are, you know. Uh, so it was a bit of a shock then when I suddenly saw Jean come into church. Uh, I really didn't expect that, and I had to quickly go and brief her on what was going to happen. Well, as she was leaving the church after the service, which incidentally, the scripture, the New Testament reading for the day was James, where it talks about, show me your faith, and I will show you my faith by my works. And this was the subject. And so as they were leaving, Jean said to me, I'm not a woman of faith, Dave, but I am a woman of action. And I said, Jean, that is the best kind of faith that I know about. It's, it's what we do, surely what we do has to be more important than what we mentally subscribe to or which club we go to or which, what we do with our Sunday mornings. Surely God has to be cleverer than to judge people on such a shallow basis. God must be interested in who we are. And on that basis, I think Jean is a woman of enormous uh, spiritual intelligence, someone who's driven to transform the world in accordance with her instinctive sense of how things should be. She has a vision of compassion and justice triumphing over prejudice and discrimination and pursues it tenaciously. And the great news is, actually, that from that Sunday, uh, she and her other daughter and her husband have become addicted to coming to St. Luke's. Um, still Norman, her husband, says, I'm not quite sure if I believe any of this, but he says, I want to be part of it. And uh, they've been drawn into, into this journey. Faith is, I think, the state of being ultimately concerned, of being gripped and driven by something that we are convinced is of fundamental importance and which places an unconditional demand upon us. Uh, faith is also the... the the attitude of full-hearted openness to the mystery of life, entrusting the soul to life's immensity, named or unnamed. And there are lots of reasons why people have turned away from and found themselves reluctant to take the name God or to identify with organised religion. And a lot of those reasons, I think, are good reasons. And the last thing in the world I'm going to do is go out and try and be defensive about that. I think that it's more important to connect with 
the journeys that people are already on. And uh, I think that there are very good reasons to be part of a community of people, the church. Um, but I think that I understand why for some people it's a struggle. And let me finish with, with a story about that. Um, this is about a, a woman called Brenda. Uh, Brenda grew up in a, in a staunchly Christian home, controlled by uh, an obsessively religious father. She attended church, she prayed, she read the Bible dutifully from her childhood upwards. And yet, the God that she internalized through all of these activities, I would say, almost wrecked her life. Under the shadow of a horribly disapproving dad who criticized her mercilessly, the heavenly father that she came to know turned out to be a larger-than-life version of this wretched man. When I met Brenda, she was in her mid-30s. She'd almost got no self-esteem, despite being a bright and beautiful woman with a successful career. She could recite verses from the Bible and utter religious platitudes and so on, you know, about God loving her and so on. But actually, uh, underneath of it, she didn't believe that at all. She once said to me, God may love me, but he definitely doesn't like me. Basically, God made Brenda's life a misery. I often think about committing suicide, she said, but I'm frightened I'll go to hell. She looked a bit disconcerted when I suggested that she should perhaps stop reading the Bible and praying and seek therapy instead. But after six months of no church, no Bible and no prayer and the help of a good therapist, she wrote me an email which said, when you told me to stop practicing my faith, which wasn't what I said actually, but... Uh, she said, I was devastated, outraged. I wasn't sure that I should trust you. You snatched away my security blanket, but everything is falling into place now. I was clinging to the thing that hurt me most. I'm starting to believe that instead of being angry at my failure, God may have actually grieved at my upbringing. His anger may have been directed at my father and the church rather than me. Perhaps God does like me after all. At a later meeting, I asked Brenda, if there was anyone who she felt loved her unconditionally. Like a flash, her face lit up and she said, my grandma. So I said, so what is it about your grandma that makes your face so bright? What is it that, you know, warms you so much? And she proceeded to tell me how when she was a small child at her grandma's house, she knocked over a treasured vase, a family heirloom. Uh, knowing how important the vase was, the little girl screamed out loud when it hit the floor and broke into a thousand pieces. But when her grandma rushed into the room, there wasn't any anger, there was no recrimination, just relief. Thank God, you're okay. And she took her into her arms and cuddled her up into her bosom. Recalling this story with teary eyes, Brenda announced with a sense of self-worth that I hadn't seen in her before, and that was the day I discovered that I was my grandma's family treasure. So Brenda, I said, looking her straight in the eyes, what if God is like your grandma and not like your dad? How would it change things if you imagined God as being like your grandma, as a warm motherly figure who gathers you into her arms when you do something wrong, instead of the harsh father figure who admonishes you? And she paused for a minute while the idea kind of percolated through. Can I really picture my gram when I think about God? She asked. Why not, I said. Reinventing God, or at least reinventing the image and notion of God etched in her psyche, transformed Brenda's life, and definitely for the better. Uh, she dumped the idea that God in any way resembled this father that she had, and she began to flourish with a sense of inner acceptance. Is God like Brenda's grandma? Well, of course, not literally, but no more or less, perhaps, than lots of the other images that we have of God, which we often forget are just that. They're images, they're human uh, metaphors and pictures to help us to understand something that ultimately defies all understanding. And uh, so I, I don't think that it's, it's a bad thing to picture God in these kind of anthropomorphic terms or whatever. The problem is if we actually imagine that what we're doing is describing God as God is. God is that which is indescribable, depictable maybe, 
but not ultimately describable. And so uh, I think what I'm trying to do in this book is, as I said at the beginning, to help people with the process of thinking these things through. Um, there are lots more stories in the book, of course, uh, and other ideas and thoughts and applications that I'm trying to, to bring into people's lives. Um, my deepest concern is that the God that I know in Jesus Christ will be made known to people in a truly liberating way. And uh, I look at Jesus and I think he wasn't interested in creating you know, churches and denominations and organised religion, all that kind of stuff. All this has come and it, and it may or may not help to greater or lesser degrees. But I think that what Jesus was impassioned with was what he called the kingdom of God, God's programme of transformation in the world, in people's lives and so on. I think insofar as the church serves that purpose and is part of that mission, uh, it is fulfilling the purpose for which it was born. Um, sadly, I think often it, it doesn't do that. So uh, I finish really with, these are probably my few more modest proposals really. The, the little manifesto at the end of the book says, uh, it's a manifesto to follow the way of Jesus rather than rules and conventions. To doubt and question without fear and never be daunted by orthodoxies and authority figures. To make a priority of kindness and compassion to pursue justice for all people. To embrace messiness and imperfection while aspiring to be all that we can be. To live courageously and resist being motivated by guilt or fear. To look for God in every person and situation. To have parties, laugh a lot, enjoy friends and welcome strangers. To resist passing judgment and befriend people in the margins. And to love the world and honour it as God's body. So these are my humble, modest proposals, and uh, I'm very happy to, uh, to engage with any questions that you have about them. So are there any questions you want to ask of Dave? Yeah, the back. About the image of God as being the big man with a white beard that um, occasionally wanders into our life and knows. But where, where does prayer come into your vision of God as being, if I understood it correctly, as being part of the world, speaking to us through nature, speaking to us through our own makings of things? Where does prayer come in? Where does our communication with God and hearing God's word back to our prayer? Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. I think that prayer, in essence, is, is much greater than prayers. Do you know what I mean? So prayers, these things that we, we say, we have them written in books or we compose them ourselves, but it, it basically sort of words that we construct. I think that prayer is, is, the essence of prayer is greater than that. And I think that prayer, uh, often when I have gatherings of people in, in church who are, who are not churchgoers for a uh, you know, a baptism or, or a wedding or something else, I often say to people um, that you probably really wish the very, very best for this baby or for this couple who are getting married today. And that passionate wish that you have, in essence, is prayer. It's, it's, it's something that's coming from down in here. It's the things that we long for, that we uh, feel profound gratitude for. So in other words, prayer isn't first and foremost about words. It's about an attitude, a way of being. It's about something that's rooted in, in how we are in the world. And therefore, I think a lot more people pray than think they pray. Uh, and obviously, I think that prayer also is expressed, as, I, as I've indicated, through the things that we do. And... Um, 
It's interesting, actually, that, you know, there's that little book, which I'm sure some of you read, called The Language of Love, Languages of Love, which sort of says that, that two people, you know, in friendship, we express, we express love in different ways. Some use words and some actions and, and uh, some have physical gestures. And, and I think, actually, there's something similar and equivalent to that in prayer, that I think for some people, my wife is one of them, you know, she just thinks words are a load of, you know... And, and this is me, you know, she, she sees me as the ga-ga-ga-ga-ga, you know. Uh, she's, a, she's a practical person. She's a kind of gut person. She feels God down here. Um, and I think that's to do with her personality, which is different to mine. And she processes the world differently. And so that's going to come into prayer. So prayer takes a whole lot of different things. But suppose specifically what, what, you, you, what you may be indicating, you know, is, is the prayer when we, we're really intercession, when we're asking God to intervene and do something. Um, and uh, I think that's where what I'm saying really raises most questions, really. Um, I think that in, in How to Be a Bad Christian, I've, one of the things that I've said there, I mean, I think, I think actually one of the reasons that I do still pray those kind of prayers is because actually that just is the only thing I feel I can do sometimes. It's kind of, I, and whether it's doing anything out there or not, it is doing something here. It's, the, it's one of the ways in which I respond. It's only one, but it's one of the ways in which I respond. Uh, perhaps feeling great love and compassion, or maybe feeling anger at things that, are, that are, you know, I, I would like to change in the world, or, or whatever. And so prayer is one way of kind of giving expression to those deepest things in me. I don't necessarily think of, of God there sort of uh, going, hmm, which one should I do here? Should I, should I say yes to that or to this? Or I, that makes no sense to me at all. However, um, what I've said in How to Be a Christian is that I think that the whole kind of idea in science of the so-called butterfly effect is an interesting one, you know, which has come out of meteorology, you know, where it was sort of, you know, the reason that weather forecasting is so difficult is because tiny, tiny things can make a big difference somewhere else. And, uh, and, and this so whole idea, which has been known as the, the butterfly effect, uh, or, or, and it links to chaos theory and so on, I think is actually significant, that I think that actually um, I, can, I, can, I can see the effectiveness of prayer within that context, not so much as, you know, sort of God sitting there, as I say, pressing buttons or pulling levers to make things happen in response. But I do think that the things often that we long for most in the world, I think, are the things that we do identify with God. That if God doesn't long for these things too, then I wouldn't really feel that God was God, you know. So that I think that it is aligning oneself with divine energy in the world and, and I think that it is possible to see that the, the prayer uh, can be part of making a difference. Um, but it's removing the kind of magicalness out of it and seeing that it's part of, of actually a completely integrated process of life that, that the world, that, that, that the universe is. Thank you. came to me a few years ago as a Christianity sometimes may appear as a very high class club, golf club, uh, which is very difficult to get in. And if you're in there, you have to do this, you have to say this, and you have to... You have to agree with everything. Mm. You can't. Mm. You can't disagree. You have mm. to. You uh, you have to agree with everything that was going on in the club and everything. Would you say that this is? Do I think that's how it is? This is how sometimes it happens to people. I think it's how a lot of people experience it. Now, obviously, you know the church you know, is, is a huge, you know, or, you know, at times monstrous kind of uh, thing out there, um, which varies enormously from place to place. So I think that, you know, different people experience different things, and Christianity comes across to people. People experience it in different, in different ways. Um, but I think that... Um, 
there's something about uh, the, the sort of, I, I, I mean, again, I'm bringing kind of an, an idea from outside of religion to talk about this, because I think that churches and religious communities are essentially sociological entities, just like anything else, and they have the same sort of things going on, and I think that any sort of uh, organisation has a tendency to evolve in a particular way, and so, uh, yes, it, you know, it, it, it's, it it's sort of, for its own survival, it often benefits or feels that it benefits from having strong borders. So there are the people who are in and the people who are out. And, and therefore, there's a strong frontier. And, and it may be sometimes, as you've said, quite demanding sometimes for people to get inside because that sort of is how it builds up that sort of entity, if you like. Um, and then in order to, to exist and carry on, there are sort of you know, rules and processes and all these sort of things come in. Now, I'm not saying all of that is bad, but I'm saying this is, this is something which is a characteristic of life that we, in any context, whether it is a, a business institution or an educational institution or a religious institution, we have to battle against because this is the sort of forces that will come in and overwhelm the, the real meaning of life, the essence of what education or the business or, or the, the religious community is all about. So, so there's always a tension, I think, between the kind of spiritual essence of something, the life force that's there, and the structures that inevitably do grow up around it. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's important that there is constant conflict between these two things. And sometimes you need people to be an irritant inside, um, you know, to, to sort of keep on staring it up and reminding us that uh, this isn't who or what we're supposed to be about, it's about something else. And that's why, as I say, I think, uh, you know, you, 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 there's, a, there's a chapter in, in the manifesto book which is called What Really Mattered to Jesus, subtitle, and it wasn't creating the church. I don't think that Jesus came to create the church. I think Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God into the world and into people's lives. Now, as I say, that's, that's, I'm not anti-church. I think the church is, has got a very real part to play in that. But it will, it's a human institution, and therefore there will always be a conflict bit between the two things. And I could go on forever. So what is your stance on salvation through Jesus Christ, um, especially where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except the Father. And if the God of the atheists, the God of the Christians, and the God of the Muslims are all the same, then what about heaven and hell? Who's in hell? Uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> hmm. uh, hell, I've got quite a few difficulties about there. But um, I suppose, we, you know, and I think the problem is that salvation has tended to be cast within this kind of story of um, what happens to us when we die. And, it, and it's come to, to revolve around that, which actually in many ways is a, is a very speculative thing because actually none of us has been there and come back and knows exactly that. You know? So we may believe passionately that this is how it is going to be and we may interpret it from the Bible in that way. But at the end of the day, I, my focus is much more on what does salvation mean now um, and how does that impact people's lives now. Now, I think that, you know, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I, he, he didn't say that any particular religion or any particular doctrine was the way. He said that it was he that was the way, him, uh, which I personally interpret to say this is the, the, who and what he was about. You know, there was his way. If you look through the, through the gospel, you see, look at what, how Jesus actually preached and what he taught people. He never asked people to sign up to a doctrinal kind of creed or, or, or anything like that. He never asked people to believe anything in terms of rational kind of propositional statements. What he did do was he called people into a way of life. He called them to follow him, to be part of his way. And, and when people came and actually asked direct questions like, what must I do to have eternal life, which you know, sort of Christianity I've grown up in had a very clear packaged answer to that question. But Jesus never seemed to have heard of it uh, because he said, uh, keep the commandments. Uh, he said, sell all that you have and give to the poor. So in other words, he was saying that, 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 that salvation, if you like, is to do with our lives and the way that we live them and the, and the kind of 
choices that we make in life, the way that we treat other people and all these sort of things. Um, now people say to me, oh, well, this is a gospel of works. No, I'm, I'm not saying that we are saved by being good. Um, I'm saying that the way that Jesus calls us into is a way of behaving and being in a, of, in a, a particular sort of person. So when you look in, you know, the early, the early Christians, of course, weren't called Christians for, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 20 years or something, they, before the word Christian emerged, before that, they were known as disciples, followers, people of the way. And I really like that. I think that because people of the way talks about a journey, a process, rather than a kind of destination. And I personally feel quite happy to leave the kind of, the questions that I can't answer, what happens after we die and all that, I feel happy to kind of, I mean, I'll speculate like everyone else. I'll argue my kind of views from what I think the Bible says and all the rest of it. But in the end, I'm much more interested in what I think Jesus was interested in, which is calling people to live in a particular way, to connect to God now and to experience, you know, eternal life as a reality here and now. Could be. Sorry, I want to hear it, sir. Right. Mm. It's a bit of a deep one, this, but um, my earliest experience at the, at the church, at the church movement school, was I was sort of like abuse and um, snobbery and hypocrisy. Um, thanks, in most part, to, to your books, um, I've tried to re engage with the church as an entity, but what do you suggest by someone that? All the baggage and all the things, all the fripperies around it is a constant reminder of that. And that's what sometimes makes me want to walk away and leave it. Mm. But in my heart, I, I can't. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I wouldn't want to give a kind of too hasty an answer to it, really. I think it's... it's um, I, I do think that some people, certainly for some part some time in their life need to just put some distance between themselves and that which has been a source of abuse or hurt or whatever to them. That's what I was saying to Brenda, really. Um, because I felt that the doing of the things that she was doing, her kind of religious practices, if you like, only reinforced the thing that I think she needed to, to get to get away from and be healed from. And so she could, you know, I, my, my work with her was to try to get her later to reconnect with those things um, from a different perspective, from a place of healing, from some of the, the impact of that. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, I, I like what you're saying, you know, that, that you want to kind of, you feel like you want to get away from it, but you feel like you can't, because in a way that's my story. That's why I'm here today wearing a dog collar you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing, because there's a sort of quite a substantial chunk of me inside that just says, get out of here, you know? Um, you're never going to change it, and, you know, this is, you know... But then there's another part of me that thinks, no, I can't do that. And uh, to some extent, um, in terms of the way I see, you know, kind of Christian mission, if you like, is, is that I have a foot in both camps. Um, because I, I am, I do love the church, you know, and I'm committed to the church, and it's given me so much, and and I'm committed to trying to be part of a greater force of renewal within the church. Um, but I still believe that if we look to the future, I think that probably the vast majority of people are not going to come. That's not that's not going to be the way for them, and therefore we're going to have to find some other way to connect with those people. Um, and that was sort of, sort of what, what I was feeling for, for 10 years by, by having a sort of church in a pub, you know. Um, and it's something I'm encouraging people to do more now. It doesn't necessarily about being a pub, but, but for people to be able to get together. Somebody said to me recently, because when, when I go around talking about the, the books, I've said, please try not to arrange it in a church. You know, let it be in a pub or a cafe or somewhere where p people are likely to come who wouldn't go into the church. And, and that's mostly happened. And so I've, got, I've had lots of wonderful conversations with many people who are not churchy people, uh, but who are touched by what I've been saying. 
And, uh, and this one lady, she said, there aren't many places where you can have deep conversations. And I thought, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think that people do want to be able to, to grapple with issues that really matter in life. Well, it's ultimate concern, what I've been talking about. Unfortunately, I think often in church, those conversations don't happen. Um, it's the ideal place, but I think it often doesn't happen. And so, and so I think we've, we've got to look on a number of different levels. Um, with, with someone with a story like yours, I think it, you know, it needs a more kind of personal kind of response, really. But... Um, I do think sometimes we just, for sanity's sake, have to put a little bit of distance, um, but recognise that God is, in, is everywhere, you know, whether we're inside this institution or outside of it or, or whatever. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, when I was a training officer 15, 20 years ago in the Diocese of Exeter in Devon, I used to go around and say to clergy sometimes, if you're not on the verge of resigning at least some of the time, there's something wrong with you. And it's lovely to meet somebody else who feels the same way. And someone who has such a passion for Jesus Christ. Um, someone described you as, as writing the, the Honest to God. I mean, you're probably far too young to remember this, but the Bishop of Woolwich wrote a book in 1963 called Honest to God, which was terribly shocking at the time, saying some of the things that Dave is saying, but in a much more kind of intellectual, academic, theological way. And I think yours is a bit like that for our times, which is much more, as you say, about experience, uh, but also that passionate engagement of what is life all about and how do we engage with it. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and uh, for coming and being so open and honest about your journey, which touches the lives of so many other people. Thank you very much. <laughs>